You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to the Gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through him the world was made. Through him the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's turn together to Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is he called God's only begotten Son? Since we also are children of God. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God, we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, like Thomas, 
I'm thinking of the Thomas that we touched on last Sunday afternoon, one of the twelve disciples. And why do I like this particular Thomas? Well, I like him because he's a straight shooter. In John 20, he says he's not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless he sees and touches the hands marked by the nails of Jesus. And neither is he going to believe unless he touches the side of Jesus. In other words, Thomas refuses to be convinced by all of the emotional outbursts and excitement that confronts him when he meets his fellow disciples. And most likely, he doesn't trust them to get it right. After all, they had all taken flight around the arrest of the Lord Jesus. None of them had done anything about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, what kind of reliable witnesses are they? And then he probably includes himself in the mix. But then Jesus comes again, he confirms the testimony of the disciples, and he confronts Thomas. And what does Thomas do? Well, you can see it very clearly at the end of John's Gospel. He moves from doubt to uncertainty, from disbelief to faith, from reservation to affirmation. He utters a short but deep, deep confession in and to and about Jesus, exclaiming, My Lord and my God. You see, in the end, Thomas ends up saying great things about Jesus Christ. He says the same thing that the Apostles' Creed will later on say. He says the same thing, although reversed, what you find here in Lord's Day 13, my God, my Lord. In the end, thanks to the help of the Holy Spirit, Thomas gets it right. So I like him for his honesty and for his confession. When he's wrong, he doesn't dig in his heels, nor does he get his nose all out of joint, as sometimes we do. No, he admits it, and he sets the record straight. And that's not all. I like Thomas, too, because Jesus uses him to get at us today. Read verse 29 of John 20. Because you have seen me, Jesus says to Thomas and to all the rest, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. And in a manner of speaking, beloved, that's all of us. We're all the unseeing and the yet believing. We don't get to see or touch, but we do get to believe. And that makes us, Jesus says, special, different, precious to God and different. And so Thomas also highlights our specialness that we believe without seeing. But what do we believe? We believe, of course, many things that God has revealed to us in his word, but 
Especially we believe, and that's at the heart and the center of our faith, we believe what God has revealed to us about his only son. And what is that? Well, among other things, it's this. The glorious confession of Christ Jesus as Son and Lord. Well, let's consider together, in light of that, the wonder of his person, the miracle of his family, and the security of his care. You may have noticed, beloved, the Heidelberg Catechism is a little bit of a slowpoke here in these Lord's Days. It uh, spent a whole Lord's Day on the name Jesus. It spent another Lord's Day on the name Christ. Today it's going to devote another Lord's Day to two more names, namely Son and Lord. Next, it assigns a whole Lord's Day to his birth, another to his suffering, still another to his death and to his burial and his descent and so forth. In all, the Catechism takes nine Lord's Days to cover the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost 20% of the Catechism is devoted to him. Now, why does it do that? Well, you could say for the very simple reason that there is no more important person in all the world. There is no one else who compares to him, who can hold a candle to him, as they say. No one who is as precious and as priceless. No one who is as crucial and as necessary. You know, you and I, we get to meet a lot of people throughout a lifetime. But they all pale in comparison to him. If there's one person that you and I really need to know, it is Jesus Christ. And if you're inclined to be antisocial, make sure that you're not antisocial when it comes to him. For that's a matter of life and death. So who is he? Well, Lord's Day 11 says he is the Savior. Lord's Day 12 says he is the anointed. And that brings us to Lord's Day 13, where things get really deep and personal. And in connection with his name, the only begotten Son, the Catechism says, this Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. Now, that's short. I'm not sure it's sweet. It's profound. It's difficult. It's mysterious. And yet, it's also profoundly biblical. You know, we read together, and turn with me to that first chapter of John's Gospel. You know, there we're introduced to the Word. And that expression, the Word, is not the name of a book. It's the name and description of a person. John goes on to say in verse 2, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Try to capture that with your mind. And then notice all the masculine pronouns as John continues, Through him all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Very few words, but notice how profound and how deep. Skip to verse 24. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And not only that, for John adds, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You know, step by step, John gives us a totally different take on Christmas. He ignores Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the angels, Elizabeth, Zachariah, Simeon, Anna. He puts the coming of this person in the context of all the ages. When Jesus comes, he says, the word comes. When Jesus comes, God comes. When Jesus comes, the creator and sustainer of the universe comes. When Jesus comes, life comes, light comes, flesh comes, glory comes, the one and only comes, grace comes, truth comes. Everything important and essential comes. But yet there's also more. If you read carefully, and what do you read? You hear John say, the word was with God. And you hear him say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Obviously, the word is God. But the word is also, John says, with God. And he came from the Father. And there is thus, and that's the only conclusion I think you can logically and accurately come to, one God here, but two persons. There was the Word and the Father. Or there is the one and only and the Father. Or there is the one who is full of grace and truth and the Father. So who is the Word? Who is the one and only? Who is so full of grace and truth? Well, verse 17 brings us the answer. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not until verse 17 that he's identified. And then there is verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So, beloved, the expressions, the word, God, the one and the only, grace and truth, they all point to Jesus. And then there's one more thing that you need to understand to make the picture complete. It has to do with the witness and the testimony of John the Baptist, his forerunner. He meets Jesus at the Jordan River and says, For one and everyone to hear, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. 
All of what John writes in the beginning about Jesus culminates in the confession about Jesus as the Son of God. So who is Jesus? The King James Version, the New King James, the NASB all call him the only begotten Son. That word begotten is a hard word, a hard Greek word. It doesn't communicate very well in the English language. It usually sends us down the wrong pathway. And maybe that's why the NIV translates the one and only, and the ESV calls him the only son. And in a way that's better, for the Greek word that's used here is used elsewhere in the New Testament for an only son or an only daughter. It's used to describe someone who's unique, one of a kind. And notice, too, what the Catechism says about him. Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. In other words, he's eternal because he's always been God. And he's natural because he shares the same divine nature as the Father. So what does all of that mean? It's kind of heavy theology, isn't it, in a way? Well, beloved, it means, and that's the bottom line here, that you and I have an absolutely different, unique, one-of-a-kind Savior. That's something you, you should never forget. And never allow anyone to convince you of anything else. At bottom, he's not just man. He's not merely human. Don't bring him down to your level and keep him there. Together with the church of all ages, confess that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. Yes, and that means, too, that you need to continue to resist the teachings of all those who would rob Jesus of his divine sonship. And among them, I would include the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, as they're properly called. I'm sure you've all heard, maybe seen and read about the new Mormon temple constructed here in Langley. It's an impressive-looking structure, but the theology behind it is all wrong. And that includes, and that gets to the heart of our faith, that includes what they believe about Jesus. As one of their writers has said, he, Jesus, is the firstborn of the Father. By obedience and devotion to the truth, he attained the pinnacle of intelligence which ranked him as a God, as the Lord omnipotent, while yet in his pre-existent state. Let me repeat that, at least part of it. By obedience and devotion to the truth, 
he attained that pinnacle of intelligence which ranked him as a god, as the Lord omnipotent while yet in his pre-existent state. What does that mean? It means that the Mormons believe that at one time Jesus was not God. That he has not always been God. No, rather what they teach is that Jesus became God or a God. He became God before, they say, he became man because of his obedience and devotion to the Father. In other words, he earned this right, this honor. He did, they say, what we all must do, and that is earn our way to become God's. After death. Well, beloved, that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. That's the Jesus of ancient heresy and modern reinvention. Avoid him. Like the plague. And give that glossy new temple a thumbs down. But then, beloved, if God the Father has one absolutely unique, holy, and different Son, what about us? What are we? What's our status? And you know, that's an important question. I've been told that one of the worst predicaments that a person can face in life is to become stateless. Everyone wants to belong somewhere, to be part of some group, some country, some clan, or some family. To have no country, no home, no citizenship anywhere is a curse and an ultimate form of rejection. But you know, that's not our problem. By nature and by origin, we were not orphans. We were not nobodies or nothings. By nature and origin, we belong to the children of darkness. That's our problem. And you know, the Apostle John makes that abundantly clear, not in his gospel, but in his first letter. There in chapter 2, he, he works out this whole concept of light and darkness, and he warns us about the darkness and says that it's a lifestyle ultimately filled with hatred. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. And he also says that those who are in the darkness do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Now, isn't that an apt description of the life of many people today? You ever talk to people about fundamental questions of life? Who are you? Where are you going? Where are you headed? What's the nature of life and living and the meaning and the significance and the purpose of all of these things? You know, when you do that, what you discover is that most people don't have a clue as to where they're going. They don't even know what life's about. They don't know what to live for. 
They really are, as John says, stumbling around in the darkness, stubbing their toes here and there and everywhere. They're blind. And folks, that's us by, by nature. And that describes the life of so many people today. They haven't got a home. They don't have a clue as to where they're going. Or what they're doing or what they're living for. But John says, you do. If you know Jesus, then you know the way and you know the truth and you know the light. If you know Jesus, then you know how to live and where to walk. And more than that, even if you believe in Jesus, you not only know the way, but you know the way home. You know the way home to the family of God. John exclaims, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. John's blown away by that concept. How great is the love of the Father and the love he's lavished on us, on who we are. That we are God's children. And you know what John is saying is that God the Father's love embraces more than just his unique son, Jesus. But the reality is that today God has many sons and daughters on whom he lavishes his love and care. The Apostle Paul says that the Father has lavished his spirit on many, making and transforming them into sons of God. And you know, he adds, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. So what happens to those who believe in Christ? The only son, God adopts him. God claims them. God counts them among his children. God makes them into heirs. God enables them to share in the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ. The sons of darkness become the sons of light. And they get to share share in the inheritance of the great son of light. You see what a revolutionary change of status this is. What a momentous shift. What a fundamental change of direction and of value and of status and of lifestyle and of perspective and of belonging. We've been brought from the darkness into the light. From being strangers to becoming children. From nothing into something. From dust to glory. And yet realize at bottom, beloved, this is not, this is not our doing. The Mormons would teach you that the status of sonship is something that you need to earn. You have to work at it really, really hard. You have to perform religiously. You have to get your moral and spiritual act together. 
You, 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 you have to do it. But that's not the message of the gospel. For the gospel is all about grace. It's all about the fact that we can't do it, no matter how long and hard we try. No, we need to turn our lives over to Jesus Christ, for he alone can do it, and he will do it. To faith in him and thanks to the riches of his grace, we are adopted. We become heirs. We belong to the family of God. What a miracle, what a blessing. What a gift. And also what a security. I don't have a lot of time left to spend on question and answer 34 except to point you to the last expression of answer 34 to make us his own possession. That's the end result, you might say, of lordship, of sonship. And in this connection, Lord's Day 13, notice, first deals with sonship, both Christ's sonship and our sonship, and then it goes on to lordship. Christ is son and Christ is Lord. What does it mean that he's our, our Lord? Well, you can say it means he's our owner, master, benefactor, protector, keeper. In the Old Testament, the title Lord or Yahweh often points to the God of the covenant, the God who promises great things and the God who accomplishes great things. In the New Testament, you'll find this meaning for the word Lord as well, but you'll also find another meaning which is Lord as kurios. And that last sense is what's meant here in Lord's Day 13. Here the reference is being made to Jesus as Lord, as Kyrios. The background is the world of slavery, where people are bought and sold with silver or gold or paid for by silver and gold. Well, says the scripture summarizing the catechism, we too have a Lord who has bought and paid for each and every one of his children. He's bought us totally. Body and soul. He's bought us temporally and eternally. This life as well as for the life to come. He's bought us not with money, but with his blood, his very own blood. He's bought us not to enslave us all over again, but to set us free. And finally, he's bought us to make us his very, very own. Jesus, our Lord, has bought us to make us his own possession. And maybe in that you hear the language of jealousy. We belong to him, not to anyone else. He's not going to share us out with anyone or anything else. That's the message of Lord's Day 1. I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it gives you the awareness that here you're entering into the realm of security and certainty. And that worth something today, isn't it? Isn't that worth a great deal today? Isn't insecurity one of life's greatest ills? 
How many people don't live in fear today? Fear of this, fear of that, fear of the present, fear of the future, fear of man, even fear of God. How many people don't have a clue what life is all about? But again, beloved, you do. You are the property of Jesus Christ. You belong to the Lord of Lords. You are His most expensive possession. And that means you have nothing to fear and everything to hope in and to look forward to. He'll watch over your life. He'll lead you like a shepherd. He'll keep you safe. He'll protect you. He says in, in John 10, verse 28, I, I know my sheep. And that means he knows us better often than we know ourselves. I know my sheep. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So, beloved, when you, when you doubt, when you struggle, when you wonder about what life is dealing you, remember this. And maybe say it over and over again, not like a mantra, but like a catechism. By faith and through grace, I'm a child of God. I belong to His family. I've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, no one can snatch me out of His hand. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.